everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show, we have Eric McNulty, who is the Associate Director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard. Thanks so much for joining us today, Eric. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I want to start with a recent article um, that you wrote for the Harvard Business Review. You focused on the difference between leading through a crisis or simply managing the response. Can you lay out for our listeners how you view the difference between management and leadership, maybe broadly, but also specifically um, in the crisis Certainly, and I think that one of the important things to understand is I, I very much look at leading and managing as complementary skill sets. So I think for a long time, we've thought of sort of leaders are somewhere above those who just, you know, quote unquote, just manage. And I think that's not true. Any, any effective leader I've met is also pretty good at managing and the good, good managers are also effective at leading. And so the distinctions I make, uh, one is that managing is about now. It's about what's right in front of you, solving the problem in front of you, making the trains run on time, as it were. It's about today. Leading is about the future. It's about where are we going next, and particularly in times of crisis like now, uh, the future can look a bit murky. So how do you get people to understand where you're going, get them motivated to get there, have them have hope that that place you're taking them to is going to be better when they, from where they are today? And I consciously use the term, the verb forms here of leading and managing because they're both behavior-based. These are both active, active undertakings. And I think that you slide along a continuum between the two, depending on the circumstances you face in any given day. Hmm. I find that fascinating. Where do you think we make the biggest mistakes or, or where do you see people getting tripped up the most? I, I was looking at some of your other work and you talked, um, you used a phrase that I thought was really interesting, that it was managing a crisis can sometimes feel thrilling, um, but we often return to our operational comfort zones. Can you talk a little bit about where do we get tripped up in, in this struggle? Well, I think that, first of all, the, particularly in a crisis, the now feel it is so immediate. I mean, there's so much that needs to get done right now. And if you've, particularly if you've come up through an operational background or a technical background, you sort of moved up through the ranks in a given company or given industry. So you know how to do the things that need to be done right now. It's really tempting to get in and do them, try and solve those problems, stick yourself right on the floor into the mix. Because uh, it feels good to get into the fight. It feels good to get things done. But if you're going to lead, you've got to pull back. You know, my, my colleagues and I at, at the MPLI at Harvard, we use the term meta leadership for our framework. And that meta is meant to prompt people to step back and see that bigger picture. Because if you are going to lead, you've got to be thinking about the future. What, what, what's it going to look like two weeks, two months, you know, six months down the road? And if you're down in the weeds fixing right now, you'll never see that. Have good people doing that work. Make sure they're doing it well, but you need to pull back and have that broader view. Hmm. I absolutely love the concept and the phrasing of, of meta leadership. What does that look like from a communication style? How do you embark on this path and how do you communicate that to the people that depend on you if maybe you've never led that way before? Well, I think that, that first of all, it is important that your communications be transparent and trustworthy. So you've got to tell people, here's what we're facing. No matter how bad it is, tell them the truth. Here's what it looks like. 
and simultaneously say, and I've got confidence we're going to get through with this. I have confidence in you as my team that we're going to get through this. And if those people were good enough to do their job before the crisis, if you trusted them, had developed them, integrated them well into the, into the operation, you need to be able to count on them now and hand things off to them. You know, one of the other places that leaders often or executives often get tripped up in a crisis is they start trying to make all the decisions themselves. They sort of centralize everything. And what you've actually got to do is figure out what are the decisions only you can make and then try and delegate everything else. Because otherwise you'll become a choke point, you're a single point of failure, you become that bottleneck that slows everything down and the entire organization loses a degree of, of uh, agility that you absolutely need in a crisis. I think the, the conception of a choke point is a really apt um, visualization that I can definitely make in my head. Does anything that you suggest change if we're talking about an organization of 25 people that's you know three years old versus an organization of 25,000 people that's been operating for 40 years? Uh, it, it will a bit in that I would think, it, it, to use broad brushes here, the that larger organization that's been around longer will have more established uh, protocols and processes and and power centers and people who feel like they need to do this themselves or we have to do it the way that I think is right. So you can get more intra-organizational conflict. Smaller organizations, people are usually used to wearing two or three hats. They've probably been uh, bending the protocols as they go along because you've got a more fluid situation as a company grows and you're, con you're constantly adapting to, um, to those changing circumstances. So in, in the larger organizations, it's important for the person at the top or the people at the top to give permission for people to, to be more fluid within certain guidelines. So one of the, my, my current colleagues uh, who I followed through the Superstorm Sandy down in New York and in New Jersey was uh, Rich, is Rich Serino. He was the uh, number two at FEMA at the time. And there's a very large organization that's very bureaucratic. It's a big government agency. He sent an innovation team out into the field and it was two people from FEMA and then a bunch of volunteers, technologists, designers, other people. And he sent them out and he only gave them two rules. He said, go out, solve problems, don't break the law. <laughs> And as long as they stayed within those parameters, they were free to go do what they needed to do. And they actually did solve a lot of problems and came up with some very innovative solutions. So if you're in that big bureaucratic organization, you have to be very clear, okay, here are the things we're gonna do the way we've always done them because maybe we have to legally or in regulatory terms, or it's a, it's a process we don't wanna break, but here's the places where it's okay to flex and change and adapt and, and be as fluid as we can be to solve the problem as we face it. So we're talking, obviously, it's early April here, 2020, and we've all been thrust into a new world dynamic. If um, you were talking to an organization that we weren't all thrust into this, how do we prepare leaders for the fear that it might have to simply go out and direct people to lead in that way, to give them two directives that are maybe scary? If, if that's not a way that we've led before, how do we prepare people to be comfortable with that? Well, it's 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 so interesting that, and it's a it's a matter of understanding both how you lead as well as how other people need to be led. So I was just happened to be reading a draft of a forthcoming book on leadership lessons from the Battle of Gettysburg. Really interesting book, and you'll have the authors on in a year when the book comes out. And one of the things that the, they mentioned was that 
uh, Robert E. Lee, the commander of the Confederate forces, he was very much a sort of uh, light touch leader in many ways. He would sort of give his commander's intent as it were, or, and then let his generals do what they needed to do to accomplish the mission. And when it came to Gettysburg, one of the reasons they lost that battle was one of the generals held back his forces on the first day when the Confederates actually had an advantage and um, used his discretion to do that and said, okay, we'll, we'll gonna, it's getting dark, we'll stop now, we're gonna come back at it in the morning. And Lee said, you know, I should have told him, press that advantage no matter what, because we never, they never recovered from it the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the battle turned and we all know how history turned out. So it is this matter of knowing what your personal style is, but also knowing what's right for the people you're trying to lead. And, you know, Matthew, you may, you're different than I am and we may report up to the same leader, who has to know that we need to be treated a little bit differently because we have different strengths, weaknesses, ways we process information, ways we see the world, just as we have to understand that the leader we have uh, today may be different from the leader uh, a year from now. So it's a bit of relationship negotiation to each understand how you get the best and get the most out of each other. Hmm, That's fascinating. You've been in this field for a while. You've wrote articles, you wrote a book, which I would love to talk a little bit more about. How how has your thinking most dramatically changed over the years um, on this topic or or on one of the specific topics that we've talked about up until this point? You know, I think I've really, my thinking has really evolved as I've begun to incorporate and understand more um, neuroscience and understanding how the brain works, how we as human beings are hardwired, uh, how we as mammals even are hardwired and how that affects how the ways we see the world, the ways we react to different situations. I mean, that's an area I never studied in, in my undergraduate work or graduate work. I just happen to be, I, I, the environment's a big uh, enthusiasm of mine. So I'm sort of an amateur biologist. Um, but and then jumping into the neuroscience has been really fascinating and seeing that the behavior, so much of what we do is behaviorally based, and it does go back to the, some of the ways our, our brains are hardwired and the ways we train our brains to do certain things, learning about cognitive bias and other things, which so we, we, we grow up thinking we are, we're rational people, we follow sort of standard incentives, and uh, we behave in certain ways, which are usually way off base. Um, and so I've, I have come to a belief in much more individual um, understanding of what it means to be, to, to be leading, uh, no matter where you are in an organization and how to understand your strengths and weaknesses relative to the people you have to work with. Um, so again, it's not a static set of these four competencies or six competencies work for everyone. It is how do you be your best in the context in which you find yourself, which is different every time. So that's, that's changed quite a bit. And I also want to give you a hat tip to Linda Genzel at the Booth School out of the University of Chicago, who also tuned me deeply into thinking about this verb versus noun, the you know, leading versus leadership versus a, you know, sort of a title thing, that um, the understanding the behaviors that you intentionally make behavioral choices that, that produce different outcomes that, as I've been teaching people now, teaching leaders and being with leaders, that really helps free people up. It helps them be much, have a much better understanding of how they achieve the best outcome in different kinds of situations. 
That's really interesting. And, and where do you think, I guess to piggyback on that, where do you think we're going or where do you think we need to go to prepare people for the future? If that's where you've changed, um, which I, I kind of tend to concur with a lot of what you said and, and what we see when we talk to other individuals in your field, where do you think we're going? What, what will leadership development look like a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, or what does it need to look like? Well, I think we need to, um, be much more open to what is becoming called leader, leaderful organizations and expecting lead, le, behaviors of leading at all levels of an organization and being willing to hand off uh, that leader role to the person who's most appropriate at the time. Now, it's interesting, I was recently, I've been speaking back and forth with a, a, an evolutionary psychologist who works down in New Zealand. And he was explaining to me how we have changed over time that we were hunter-gatherers out on the plains back in prehistoric times. That model, and it still is with many indigenous people, that model of the most appropriate person for the situation becomes the leader and then hands that mantle off without loss of status um, or any diminution of any kind to the next person for the next situation. That changed when we became farmers and sort of hoarding that now hoarding goods and, and crops and seeds that became the way you demonstrated wealth and success. And so you've got these hierarchical leaders, which have perpetuated for a long, long time, many thousands of years. Now you look at our economy, we've got, we've got the gig economy, we have people moving around from organization to organization more often than they ever did before. In many ways, we're going back to our hunter-gatherer roots. And so I think we're going to need to look at organizations where the, the, that model of where the leader mantle is handed off in many different ways, not tied to hierarchy. And so it'll be a different way of seeing our organizations, a different way of organizing. Uh, but one, I think it's perfectly valid. We've seen it work before. It just, it's going to be more appropriate to the context, not in every organization, but in a lot of organizations. They are this whole notion of getting flatter and the matrix thing. It's going to come to its next, next generation uh, of iteration. As, as somebody who writes frequently on this topic, how do you develop yourself as a leader? What do you spend your time focusing on, whether it's different trainings that you attend or different sorts of, it sounds like you have a lot of really interesting conversations, but where do you spend your time or what are the skills that you're focused on? So I have, just, I have learned about myself that the thing that keeps me motivated that keeps me going is learning and i'm a late in life academic i had a career in the corporate world before i i got to this point and uh, but i i love to learn that's what makes me makes me go and where i find the insights and the begin to put together different pieces to try and find new meaning around this idea of leadership development is as you say by having conversations with as many interesting people as i can find and I have to say, because I write for a number of, of uh, high-profile journals and because I've got a seat at Harvard, um, people tend to answer the phone, you know, at least a fair amount of the time. And so I will wind up talking to an evolutionary psychologist or a cognitive anthropologist or a, an urban planner. You know, and I tend to look at um, cities and the natural world, both as great laboratories of complexity. And that's really where I look to begin to understand how do we behave as individuals and how do we behave as groups and as organizations is in those laboratories of complexity. So I, I, I do love spending time with architects and urban planners and then with uh, biologists, psychologists, other people who all have their specialties 
And what I try and do is, is synthesize and find the patterns and the meaning and make the linkages that for me at least illuminate something new or something perhaps old that we've forgotten and then bring, bring that forward in the, in the writing that I do and the teaching that I do. I, I love that you're kind of piecemealing together from lots of different industries to kind of craft the vision or the, the mantra, the mission that you have as a, as a leader. I find that really, really fascinating and interesting. Um, as one of, as we kind of wrap up here a little bit, you, you're the co-author of a book, which I, I absolutely love the, the title of, and it's, it's your it crisis change and how to lead when it matters most. Can you talk through a bit about what led you to write this book and what the experience was like? Certainly, and I, I certainly hope it's flying off the shelves right now, given the situation we're in. Um, you know, my colleagues and I at Harvard, and I, I joined an existing group, but have been studying crisis leaders for almost 20 years now. And we just had the opportunity through our alumni network to get invited to be with leaders in the, in the midst of very difficult events. So I deployed to the Gulf during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. I was in New York and New Jersey after Sandy, as I mentioned, here in Boston after the Boston Marathon bombings, and now during the coronavirus response. We wanted to write the book because you know, we had this, this access. We were learning what we thought were really important lessons based on our, our field research. It was not a theoretical approach, but really seeing what leaders have to do and the tough choices they have to make. And we wanted to share that with a broader audience because you look at where we're in right now. We have a, we have a global pandemic. We have an economic meltdown around the world. We need people who are leading to do it well if we're gonna get through this stronger, better than we were before. We're gonna get the, great, the best outcome for the greatest number of people. So the book is an, it's our contribution to that, uh, both through telling stories and trying to pr provide some practical tools to help people use the lessons we've learned and apply them. Um, writing it was, was really interesting. I mean, we have, there's four of us on the, on the front, two of us were the principal writers. A very interesting process of, of writing with somebody else. And we do that on, that one on a different podcast, but getting the opportunity both to go back and, and revisit some of the the uh, crises we we saw up close and personal, but also finding new ones and talking to a, a wider group of people about their experiences and then linking them together. Um, that seeing in so many ways, you know, being a crisis leader is it's playing at a much higher level, but the core skills are not that different than what it takes to lead an organization effectively every single day. You need high emotional intelligence. You need to communicate well. You need to be able to make decisions. You need to be able to find talent and, and nurture it. Those kind of things you should be doing every day. It's just when the crisis hits, that's, that's the big game. And that's when you have to be able to step up and do it at a much higher level. So the book writing was a lot of fun. Again, met a lot of interesting people, had good conversations. And uh, I can't wait to do it again. Well, definitely given the current situation, I think it's a very appropriate title to pick up, but I think just in general, I think we could all improve our skills in that area. So as we move to our final um, rapid fire questions here, Eric, that we ask all guests, let me start with this one. Um, if you could describe your own personal leadership style in one word, what would that one word be? Collaborative. Collaborative. And our final rapid fire question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? I once had a boss who said to me as he hired me, my job is to help remove the obstacles to your success. And I have tried to repeat and re repeat that every time I've had to leave it, lead a team and to realize that the, you, the reason you're hiring people is because they're better than you at something. They're smarter than you about something. And your job is to help them succeed. That's how you all succeed together. So that boss many years ago 
It was great working for him. And I've tried to replicate that every time I've tried to lead, lead a team ever since. I think that is a great piece of advice to leave us with. And thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? You can find out more about me at ericmcnulty.com. You can find out more about the NPLI at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Well, thank you so much. And thank all of you for uh, joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it if you choose to share our show with your network. Um, You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer, and you can find our organization Ability, that is A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E at Ability.com. Be sure to subscribe so that you get our next episode. And I want to thank you all for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast. Thank you.